Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Well, good morning, Mercy Church. How you doing? It is good uh, to see you. Happy Juneteenth to all of you. It is so good uh, to be with you this morning. Uh, We are so thankful to celebrate uh, Juneteenth. If you are an African-American in this room, we celebrate with you as well. Uh, We're so thankful for you, what you mean to our church, uh, what you mean to our Lord. Uh, Also, thank you to our fathers in the room. Happy Father's Day. Uh, If you are a father, we love you. We celebrate you. God chose a title of father to be what represents his character. Uh, So we are so thankful for you. We pray for you as you uh, live out that calling on your life. Uh, So I pray that if uh, you get a moment, you get to call your father, or if your father is is not around, you get to call a spiritual father in the faith and call them and let them know uh, how much Uh, they mean to you. Um, I had an introduction, but I'm going to scrap it uh, for the moment because um, what we just experienced in singing the the gospel is really the heart of my message today. Um, We're going to be in Acts chapter 15, and what we just sang about is the hope that I want people all over the world to experience. There are people all over the place. There are people here in Charlotte that they don't get to see a relationship with God like that. They don't have a a relationship with God like that. And I so desperately want people from every tribe, tongue, and nation all over the world to experience that, but also people in our city that do not know God. When they talk to God, they're fearful of him. Or maybe they don't even think he exists. But we, the people of God, that we just experience the Spirit's power in this room, singing the gospel back to God, to ourselves, to each other, do you not want other people to experience that? Amen? Well, let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in. God, we pray right now, Lord, God, that you help us as we look at our own church history in the book of Acts. God, I pray um, that you help us to be in awe of your word and to be thankful for the gospel that we have received. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if I've not met you yet, my name is Scott. I'm the pastor of College Admissions. It is so good uh, to see you and to be with you uh, this morning. Typically, I'm at the Northeast Campus, and anytime I get to come back here, it is also uh, such a joy for me. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 15, so if you can turn there with me. We're going to be looking at some sent out people. You know, at the end of every service, we say you are sent because that's how we want to live. People expecting God to do awesome things. So we have a sent out people who have started a church and they are starting to run into some problems. 
They're starting to run into some problems. And as we start, I'd love to give you a little bit of context for where we are in this story. So up to this point in the church's very short history, nearly all of the people that have come to faith in Jesus are ethnic Jews. So up until Acts 15, Gentiles, you know, basically non-Jewish people, had only started coming to know Jesus just 10 years prior. So only 10 years. That's not a long, not a long time. Um, but there's a growing movement among the Gentiles, and God is using some missionaries named Paul and Barnabas to reach them in some pretty amazing ways. But a problem has popped up at the church in Antioch, and that's where we are in in Acts chapter 15. There was some theological confusion about what what must a person do in order to be saved, right? Pretty big deal. It's an important question to be able to answer. What must a person do in order to be saved? But their cultural differences between the Jews and the Gentiles was making it difficult for them to get onto the same page. Now listen, this chapter, chapter 15, is a big deal. we got to get this in our head. We're in Antioch. We have this young church. They're arguing over theology, but they can't seem to get on the same page. A huge church split is about to happen, and we're about to see a Jewish church and a Gentile church church instead of a unified multicultural church. And what we're going to see in Acts 15 is how they solved this really important problem. Um, So here's what we're going to see today. We're going to see that the gospel is worth fighting for. We're going to see that the gospel is worth fighting for. This church, here's what they didn't do. They didn't sit back and just let this disagreement destroy the church. They fought for unity through the gospel. They fought for unity through the gospel. In today's passage, we're going to look at a church fight by prioritizing gospel theology and how the gospel's implications on their lives should change everything. This church held firm to the non-negotiables of the faith, but they were charitable and mutually submitted, submitted to each other on issues of preference. This is such a timely word for us as a church because us at Mercy, one of our core values, we want to keep the gospel at the center of all we do. But as you know, our vision, we want to see a gospel awakening in the city of Charlotte that is carried to the ends of the earth. If we are going to do that, we have to be a unified church. Amen? We have to be a unified church. A church willing to die to our individual preferences so that all of Charlotte and all of the world can come to know our beautiful Savior. So if you will look at uh, chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Here we go. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a big deal. And after... Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Basically, things got loud. (laughs) Things got loud. They got into a big argument about it. You know, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem, to the mother church, and to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and it brought great joy to all the brothers. It brought great joy to other Jewish Christians. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them, but, verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up, and here's what they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. 
It is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. Here's the first thing that we see that is true for them, and it is true for us as well. The gospel is always being disputed. The gospel is always being disputed. You know, for us, you know, well, it can't be that, you know, it's just by grace. It's just a gift. It can't be that we have to do something, right? No, that's, you know, it's not. We'll see in a minute. You know, and, and if you're new to the church and this word gospel is unfamiliar to you, here, I want to explain it really briefly. The gospel is that you are a sinner. I am a sinner. And we have been separated from a holy God because he is good and because he is holy. He cannot be in the presence of sin, but... While that might be hard to hear, but listen to this part, he did something about it. He didn't just leave us there. He sent his own son Jesus to live perfectly in our place, to die a death that we deserve because of our sin. We deserved that death, but Jesus took it for us, and then he was buried, and he rose again from the dead, defeating death, defeating sin, so that we could be reconciled to God. The gospel is that we are saved by grace alone, meaning that it's a gift through faith alone, in Christ alone. So in these first six verses, we see that there's some confusion going on. There's, there's confusion amongst these Gentile believers uh, because of these Jewish believers, and they're telling them that salvation isn't something to be received. It has to be earned. But these men, believe, they did believe in Jesus as the Messiah. They did believe that. They had that in common. But what they were confused about is that they needed Jesus plus circumcision. They needed Jesus plus works. And in verse 5, when Paul and Barnabas got to Jerusalem, so they were in Antioch, and then they went to Jerusalem to get some counsel about this, what we see is that the same misunderstanding was going on there as well. Again, salvation wasn't to be received. It was to be earned through diligent obedience to Old Testament law. Now, before we slam these, you know, these Jewish Christians, you know, they're called the circumcision party, which is, I'll be, I'll be honest, that's a tough name. Uh, that's a real tough name. Uh, <laughs> If you don't know what circumcision is, Pastor Spence is right here. He can tell you about that uh, at the end of the service. Uh, but, um, but before we slam these Jewish Christians for their misunderstanding, we have to understand that these laws were a big part of their cultural identity. For thousands of years, you've got to get this into your head, you know, Jews were God, the Jews were God's people. And in order to be set apart from other nations, to show the goodness of God, they were required to follow Old Testament law. And you can kind of break down these laws into two categories. There were cleanliness laws and there were sacrificial laws. So the cleanliness laws, basically you had to be ceremonially unclean. There were, you had to wash your hands a certain way. There were certain foods you couldn't eat, uh, certain things you had to wear, and it was really important for you to be clean. And there's sacrificial laws, which were rules regarding, you know, we needed to, Israel needed to offer sacrifices in order for the forgiveness of their sins. Blood needed to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. It was God showing them how grievous sin is. Now, the cool thing is that Jesus did those things perfectly. He lived the perfect life, lived these laws perfectly, because the Jews were never able to do it. That's the whole point of the Old Testament law. We cannot earn salvation. We're not good. Newsflash. We are not good. If you were to take out your phone and you were to hold it around your neck like this and you were to walk around and every single thought that ever came to your head just showed up on your screen for everyone to see, would you have very many friends? No, you probably wouldn't because you're thinking, wow, she's a jerk. You know, like all these things are going on. What is going on in here is actually what's going on in here, and it's actually what shows us what's really true about us. That's what's really true. But these Gentiles, however, they didn't have cleanliness laws. 
You know, and if you put two and two together, you have one group that's trying really hard to be clean and another group that didn't even have a framework for that. One group's going to be pretty concerned. And it would, have been, it would have been impossible for these Jewish Christians to remain clean around these Gentiles who weren't concerned about that. And that's what got these Jewish Christians concerned. They were, they were afraid. And their fear led them to feel racially and culturally superior. And you can imagine how frustrating that would have been for these Jews, always worrying about cleanliness and these Gentiles not worrying about any of that and just frustrating all of their plans. You know, this is not a good recipe for church unity, right? Not a good recipe for that. So we've got this theological problem and these cultural differences that's making it difficult for them to get on the same page. Now, listen, we're not much different than that today, right? We're not much different. Just like this church, we can easily fall into the trap of feeling like we need to earn our salvation. You know, that's what religion teaches us, right? Religion teaches, I obey in order to be accepted. That's what religion teaches. I obey in order to be accepted. The gospel, on the other hand, which is the truth, teaches that I'm accepted, therefore I obey. I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Most of us are just like the circumcision party. You know, you know, I obey in order to be accepted by God. And all that does is produce fear and anxiety in us. Am I right? It produces fear and anxiety. God's always mad with me. I can never get his approval. So we work and work and work and work trying to get a favor from God that we already have. And it also, if we're in, for those of us that are really good rule followers in the room, it could also lead to a lot of self-righteousness and anger and pride towards others. We stick our noses up at people who aren't as good as we are. And that's what religion produces. And, but the gospel, on the other hand, says, I'm accepted by God, therefore I obey God simply because I love him. I obey him because I love him. You know, no other reason, I just love him. And all that does is produce joy and love for God and grace towards all types of people. You know, you see what's at stake here? The gospel is what's at stake in this church, and it's at stake for us too. You know, we're not worried about Old Testament laws per se, but we're bent towards trying to earn favor that we already have in Christ. And that's why Paul and Barnabas gets into a dispute with them because there's too much to lose if we lose the gospel. You know, we can't afford it. We cannot afford to lose it either. Go to verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after, much, uh, after there had been much debate, Peter, of course, Peter would be the first one to stand up and say something. Uh, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the, den- the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, he's, of course, referring to Acts chapter 10, where God gave him this vision that all food was to, be, was to be clean, and the Gentiles were now to be brought into the fold, and a bunch of Gentiles became believers for the first time. Verse 8, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by what? By faith. Now, therefore, why, I can hear it, why in the world are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our our fathers nor we've been able to bear? Our fathers couldn't even keep the commandments. We couldn't even keep these perfectly. Why are we going to make them all of a sudden follow these rules? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. 
Which leads me to my second point. The gospel must be defended. The gospel must be defended. And what's so interesting to me about this passage is that it reminds me of the book of Galatians a little bit, right? If you've read the book of Galatians, it should remind you of that. Galatians was written right around the same time as this incident in Acts 15. And while Peter is the first one to speak up in this story in Acts 15, not so much in Galatians. And we'll see what happened. Here's what happened in Galatians. So if you'll turn over to Galatians chapter 2 with me. Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, here's what it says. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is just another name for Peter. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul said, I opposed him to his face. Ooh, baby. I opposed him to his face. Why? Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the who? The circumcision party. He's fearing these same people in Acts 15. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Verse 14, this is a key verse. Underline it, memorize it, I don't know, do something with it. It's important. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I'm going to say that again. What was, not out of step with, what was out of step with the gospel? Their conduct. Their conduct, because his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them, if you, though like a Jew, though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified or a person's not made right by God by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, in order to be saved by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will be made right with God by works of the law. So Galatians gives us a little bit more context for this argument that was going down. And in Acts, we see Peter defending the gospel. We see Peter defending the Gentiles. But here, not so much. He started to be ashamed of his association with them. And, but look at how Paul rebuked Peter. Paul didn't come up to him and say, Peter, how dare you hold on to your racial superiority? Stop being a racist, Peter. He didn't do that. He could have, because that's what was going on. He pointed Peter to the gospel instead. That's what he did. He pointed Peter to the gospel. Why? Because that's what good friends do. They point you to the gospel. Because the gospel in this situation had implications on Peter's favoritism. Peter was being a hypocrite, and Paul called him back to proper conduct through the gospel. He used the gospel to bring him back to proper conduct. It's important to point out here that Paul's goal in defending the gospel was to bring his brother back to the truth of the gospel where he could find joy, peace, and unity. That's what Christian discipleship should look like. We point people to the gospel. But this is why the gospel has to be defended because it's our hope for our salvation, yes, but it's also our hope for our here and now. You see, the gospel is not just the front door to the Christian house, it's the whole house. The gospel has far-reaching implications on our everyday walks with Jesus. That's why we can never move past the gospel. We can't ever move past it. The gospel isn't just the ABCs of the Christian faith that we move past once we learn it. You go back to it every day because of its implications on our lives. 
So what do I mean by that? Well, I think there's two major implications to the gospel. I think there's two major implications to the gospel. The first one is that the gospel's implications are broad. The gospel's implications are broad. The gospel needed to be defended because of that reason, because its implications are broad. Many people think that the gospel is just the elementary stuff, right? It's the things that, that it, you know, it's, it's news, but it's really, the gospel is really only for non-Christians to believe in, in order for them to be saved, but it's not really for mature followers of Christ. You know, and with Peter, here's what was going on. In Christ, he knew that there was no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. He knew that. God gave him a dream about this for crying out loud. But that's the thing about us. Having right theology doesn't necessarily mean that you'll live rightly. Peter knew better, yet he lived contrary to the implications of the gospel in his life. So let me ask each of you some questions. Is the implications of the gospel affecting how you live? What about work? What about family? What about romance? What does the gospel have to say about your past? What about how you treat other people who are made in the image of God? What about other people from, people from the other side of the political aisle? Or people from a different cultural background? Now let's imagine this. Imagine, uh, scary thought. Imagine the Apostle Paul standing in front of you. <laughs> He's standing in front of you. What would he say in regards to you being in step or out of step with the gospel and how you work? What would he say, in, you know, is your value found in the dollars in your bank account? Because the gospel has something to say about that. The gospel says that you've been made spiritually rich in Christ. Why find your identity there? Well, what about family? Do you feel disowned for your faith in Christ? Have they pushed you aside? Are they ignoring you, ridiculing you? The gospel says that in Christ, you can have a new family, the church, what about romance? The gospel says that your worth isn't what others think of you or what others feel about you. Your worth is in how Christ views and feels about you. Many of us are harboring unforgiveness as well. The gospel says that since we've been forgiven of much, we can forgive of much. When I say that the gospel's implications are broad, that means that we, can, we have to filter all of life's struggles and difficulties through that lens, through the gospel. But the gospel, its implications are also deep. The gospel's implications are also deep. The gospel was defended in this moment in Acts 15 because of that reason. And to illustrate this, while I was doing some research for this, uh, for this sermon, I came across a New York Times article and listened to this title, The Enduring Hunt for Personal Value. It was in the New York Times about five years ago, The Enduring Hunt for personal value. Oftentimes, when we walk in sin, it's out of a search for us to feel valued and worthy. We want to matter. We hunt for personal value because we're afraid that if we don't find it in other people, maybe we're not valuable. Or maybe we actually do believe that we don't matter to anybody else. And if we're actually honest, maybe we'd think that we don't matter to God. You know, again, with Peter, you know, you know, in that situation, Paul could have shamed him for acting like a racist, but that's not what he did. Peter didn't have a knowledge problem. He had a heart problem. Sometimes in our hunt for value, we can look down on others. In our society today, there are plenty of people who hunt for value by looking down on other classes, other cultures, other races. Why? Because they think they're going to feel better about themselves if they do. 
That's what bullies did in middle school, right? They feel insecure, so they have to put others down to build themselves up. They don't feel valuable. They don't feel important. They don't feel like they matter to anybody. Our hunting for value in romance or money or in status or racial superiority, you know, we have to see what we're doing here. You know, we're searching to justify our existence, but we're looking for God in the wrong place. And as we see people doing this, if we respond to our friend who's walking in sin and we say, hey, stop doing that. If we only rebuke them for their behavior, you know, we might shame them out of that behavior for a little while, but their heart's not going to change. The gospel isn't achieved, it's received. We need the gospel to travel from our heads down to our hearts to remind us of the value of who we are in Jesus and to see the depths that Christ went to to show us that we are valuable to him. Again, this is what the gospel being defended looks like. I love what Paul did with Peter. I love it. And the gospel and its implications, it has to be defended. It kind of of reminds me of Jude chapter 1. You don't need to turn there. Uh, But Jude chapter 1, I've got it on the screen for you. Uh, Here's what it says. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves where? In the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and having mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. That's what Paul did with Peter. To show mercy without fear. Sorry, uh, to, show, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. That's what P- Paul was doing with Peter. He was fighting for him to remember the glorious truth of the gospel. But back to our story in Acts 15. Peter just clarified that there was no distinction between Jews and Gentiles and that they shouldn't place a yoke of, of works around their necks. But the gospel isn't Jesus plus works. He said that the, gospel, that the Gentiles are saved the same way that they were, by, faith, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 12, and all the assembly after hearing this, they, you know, they fell silent and they listened to Paul and Barnabas as they related to what signs and wonders God had been done uh, through them among the Gentiles because the signs and wonders were, were uh, giving validity to the gospel. And after finishing speaking, James, and this is the brother of Jesus, this is the guy who used to not believe in his own brother as Christ. But here he is, a leader in the church. James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, another name for Peter. My man's got a lot of nicknames. Uh, <laughs> Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the prophets agree. So he points to their own scriptures to help uh, to, to give validation for what they're talking about. He points to the prophets just that is written. It says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it and the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And that the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Basically, this is saying this, is, this has been the plan all along. 19, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Which brings us to point number three. Gospel people show grace. Gospel people show grace. See what James did here. He used the scriptures to argue his point with these Jewish Christians. He didn't give him his personal opinions on the matter. He used their Old Testament scriptures to help them see that this was God's plan to reach the Gentiles all along. And he quoted Amos 9 to do that. He could have 
quoted a lot of different passages, but he quoted Amos 9. And in verse 15, it says that the word of the prophets agree with what they are saying. I love James's heart in this. I love that he also said that his judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should not trouble them. We cannot put unnecessary rules upon them that we don't even follow. Listen, Mercy Church, we should be the safest place for lost people to turn anywhere. Like both Jews and Gentiles, we all, we all bring our baggage with us when we come to know Jesus. You know, we should know the trouble, you know, we should trouble no believers who come to Christ. You know, if we're going to be a church that reaches this city, that means that we're going to be inheriting all sorts of problems, just like this council. You know, one thing that happens in premarital counseling, I usually do that every year. In premarital counseling, what you realize uh, when you're getting married is that you're not just marrying the love of your life. You are doing that. But you're also marrying all of their baggage that they bring with them. And just like we do with our spouse, we extend grace to them about their past. We should make it easy for people to come home. We should make it easy for people to come into the church. We should make uh, someone who's turning to Jesus as easy as we can because the gospel, we un- what we understand, we understand that moment. We know how hard it is to turn from everything, to turn from our sin, sometimes from even unbelieving family members to feel alone in this world and not know what to do. We should be the safe place for them. We should be welcomed for them. We should welcome them. We need to be people that build bridges to help people know Jesus. The church shouldn't make unnecessary demands of people to be a part of the body. Now, assuredly, there are certain there is a certain biblical standard for how to follow how followers of Jesus should live. You know, the, you know, the disciples were told to be holy because he is holy, but the gospel, but gospel people know who they used to be and can say, Yeah, I've been there too. Let me show you grace. Because I was once there in that moment. Let me help you along towards flourishment in the gospel. We shouldn't have a hint of self-righteousness in our church. We have no room to. And like this early church, mercy is becoming more and more established. And as we become more established, we're going to start to have needs. And the more needs we have, the easier it is for us to become more focused on ourselves than on the mission. This text reminds us that it's easy for us to drift from being missional to reaching outsiders in order to just make the insiders happy. And it's a hard balance for the church, and I get that. I get that's a hard balance. But if we lose the impulse to do anything that we can to reach people and to disciple them, we will start to prioritize our preferences over what's good to reach and to disciple people. And if our entire focus in the church turns inward, it won't take long for the church to start troubling outsiders with their own sets of rules of what it means to be a good Christian. And for them, it was circumcision. And for us, you know, I don't know, there's a bunch of different ways that we could do this. You know, we could say, well, real Christians live this way or, or dress that way. You know, uh, they believe this or that. Or when I was in college, I had a man come up to me and say, hey, Christian men dress this way. And, and he pointed to his, his self. And uh, it was an odd moment for me. It was an odd moment. Uh, but, but what's interesting is that the standards that are usually set in the church when churches are focusing internally, they usually aren't 
bad in and of themselves. But with all of these rules, what it does is it creates a culture of, exter- of external conformity rather than, internal, rather than it being transformed from the inside. That's what the gospel does. It transforms us from the inside. Instead of us focusing uh, on showing grace and helping people to see their gospel transformational power that they can find there, we end up giving people explicit or implicit rules that they must obey in order to be accepted by this church. And because of our sinful nature, and just like the church in Acts 15, often what happens is the majority culture usually ostracizes the minority culture at that church. And then they feel like they have to change their culture in order to be a part of this Christian family. They feel like they need to assimilate in order to belong. We have to fight against that. It's going to be really hard, but we have to fight against that, which leads me to my last point, which gospel unity requires mutual submission. Gospel unity requires mutual submission. Church, listen, I think it is healthy for us to expect that God would give us the vision that we hope to see. One of our core values is that we expect God to change a life today. I expect that God is going to do that in some of your lives today. I expect it. And we should walk around Charlotte expecting God to answer our prayers. Like, for real, what if God did that? What if God actually did give us an awakening that we've been praying for? What if he did that? Would we be ready to receive who he sends us? Would we be ready for that? Would we be ready to, t- to, to sacrifice our own preferences and to mutually submit Uh, to people so that we could reach our city. In order for us to reach our city and and for us to reach the world, it will take a monumental amount of self-sacrifice. Because what Jesus said in John 17 is that the world is going to know that he is real because of our love for one another. That's the ultimate apologetic. Not infighting, unity. I want to see people come to know Jesus I want people, I want the Lord to answer our prayer to be a multicultural church. You know, as one of your pastors, I ask and I pray uh, that the Lord, that you would pray that the Lord would give us problems like this. Like, I hope that we get problems like this. That's because we're reaching all types of different people. I hope that we get to see uh, people from different backgrounds, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, Sikhs, the irreligious alike, them all flocking to the church because they've been transformed by the gospel. But if we're going to do that, we need to be ready. We need to be a church ready to die to our preferences, our music choices, how things are run, you know, this and that, things that actually are not the gospel. And if we elevate those things above the gospel, we're going to have a problem. And we're going to cease to be effective in reaching God's people who are all across the city who actually don't know him yet, but we're going to go get them. Amen? Um, James, what he did is he adopted a whatever-it-takes attitude in order to fight for unity in the church. And what he did also, is what we see in verse 19 and following, is that he asked the Gentiles to do the same things that the Jews were doing, to mutually submit. Therefore, my judgment, verse 19, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols. So these are the things that would cause Jews to, to stumble in their own faith. To, to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from things that have been strangled and from blood. See, these were all common things that were going on in the Gentile community in this area. And he's acknowledging, and it's not just Gentiles that are going to come to faith. Jews are going to continue to come to faith. 
Jews are going to continue to, to learn about who Jesus is and follow him. So it's not, so, so he's saying, hey, we're not going to make you obey all these Old Testament laws in order to follow Jesus. So we ask that you Gentile Christians be mindful of us as well and to be thoughtful of new Jewish converts who come to faith so that they don't stumble. And he gives them specific ways in order for believers, uh, for Gentile believers to serve Jewish believers. And he asks both sides to submit to each other. Isn't that beautiful? For both sides to mutually submit to one another. And then in verse 23, we see that a letter was written. A letter was written um, and was sent with Judas and Silas, not that Judas, a different Judas, um, with Silas to go back to Antioch. In verse 23, it says, The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, greetings. Skip down to 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. So they're not going to add anything. They're not gonna, you don't have to follow Old Testament law, but be mindful of these things. It would be really helpful if you did. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. These things would cause new Jewish believers to, to stumble in their faith. And if you keep from these things, you will do well. And here's what happened. <laughs> when this letter was sent off, when this letter was sent off, verse 31, they read it and they rejoiced. They rejoiced because of the encouragement. Y'all, only the Lord can bring this kind of unity. Only the Lord can do that. And I guarantee you there were naysayers who were watching what was going on in this early church and they were laughing and thinking, ha, there's no way that these people are going to ever get along. There's no way that this group of Gentiles and there's no way that these Jews are ever going to get it right. But the gospel does that. It brings us together. It brings us together. And they got onto the same page. People chose the gospel over their preferences. They chose their neighbor over themselves. And the result of this letter from James, they rejoiced. The Gentiles saw, like, listen, this was an enormous sacrifice on both of them. Like, don't get it wrong. Like, this was an enormous sacrifice for both, for both parties. But what happens is the Gentiles, they saw this church, these Jewish people, just take on an enormous sacrifice. They saw them fighting for unity. And then when they saw that, they wanted to submit as well. Mutual submission to one another. It was amazing. Y'all, this is the kind of church that I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of a church that keeps the gospel at the center and doesn't trouble outsiders with, with rules and unnecessary rules and regulations. I want us to have great gospel theology and great gospel culture. I want us to be like Jesus because he modeled this for us. He sacrificed in order to save us. The night before his death, he looked up to his father and he said, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, Father, yours be done. And Jesus submitted to the Father's will so that all who call upon his name will be saved. And it's because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and because of his resurrection that we can say that the gospel is worth fighting for. The only, the only thing that can save us is the gospel. And it's our hope for our glory in the future. And it is our hope for our faith 
right now. And if we're going to be a church that reaches our city, that reaches the nation, we have to fight for the gospel and its implications in our lives to the glory of God forever and ever. Amen? Let me pray for us. God, we love you. Lord, we pray for this to come true for us, that we would be a church that prioritizes the gospel, that we do not let anything get in the way of that. Lord, I pray as we fight for unity in the church, Lord, do not allow us to have mission drift and to forget what you've called us to do, which is to make disciples of all nations. Lord, help us to mutually submit to one another out of reverence for you so that the gospel can be known amongst all different types of people in our city. Lord, help us to not put unnecessary rules for people to come to faith. Lord, help us to be people that build bridges. Lord, it will take a lot of effort. It will take us remembering the gospel every day. Lord, help us not to forget the gospel's implications. Help us to not forget that you gave us the gospel, yes, to believe in, but also to filter all of life's decisions through. Lord, I pray that you help us, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.